Have you ever felt true freedom on stage? Or even felt like a completely different person in the Hollywood spotlight? If so, you'll want to hear from California-based actress Linda Park. Linda Park recently joined us at Imagine Talks 2021's annual symposium where she spoke about the value of our stories. Linda was born in South Korea and immediately after graduating Boston University's Bachelor's in Fine Arts acting program, Linda booked her first movie role in Jurassic Park 3 alongside Lara Dern, and then she landed her first series regular role on Star Trek Enterprise shortly after. Linda Park then continued on as a series regular in Reigns Women's Murder Club and Stars Crash. She's currently recurring on Amazon's Bosch and Apple TV's For All Mankind. Linda sat down with us at the Imagine Talks 21, 2021 symposium, and here's her interview. Now, without further ado, here's the encore presentation. Hi, Linda. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, Francis. Thank you for asking me to do this. Um, what do you so, want to talk about? <laughs> so many things I want to talk to you about. And first of all, let me just say such a great pleasure, honor, and privilege to be able to talk with you. Um, fan of your work from Enterprise while I was still coming out of school myself. And so being able to talk with uh, basically someone who was very influential and inspirational for me community. This is such a privilege. So thank you again for taking the time to do this. Uh, I am personally very humbled by this. So thank you. So thank you, of course. So before we begin, um, let me do a quick introduction and then I would love for you to share a little about yourself. But um, Linda, you are an actor. Uh, you're probably most famous for your role uh, on Star Trek Enterprise as I think it was Lieutenant uh, uh, Sita? So, yeah, you were the linguist. Sato. I knew this. The what? Yeah. yeah. Hoshi Sato. Hoshi Sato, right. I remember you as a linguist um, and you were yeah. just so talented. And I think obviously this is in real life too, but you're so talented um, in enunciation and articulation because so many of the alien languages that they made there, which sounded like real languages, um, yeah, they just sounded so amazing on, on set. Uh, so, but of course you've done so many other bits of work here and there and, and there's some here that, um, that we wanna highlight and also some of the things that we're coming up for that we wanna like maybe give a peek at some of the cool things you're coming up with yourself. But before I even jump into that, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from um, and what were some of the things that was going through young Linda Park's mind way like you're part of high school or right after high school the things that were going on remind after high school during high school yeah wow um i was i was actually born in seoul um and came to the states with my mother when i was two so we didn't become citizens until i think i was 12 years old, 11 or 12. Okay. So we were working on a green card. And we came to Milpitas, which is Northern California and San Jose, you know, all of that Bay Area. Um, 
I went to school, Notre Dame, all girls, private Catholic school, but that was because I was in the public school system in Milpitas, where it was, uh, it was pretty gnarly. The blood and Crips were big at the time. Right. There was a lot of wannabe action, like a lot of identifying with a blood or a Crip and threatening people that your cousin was a Crip. And if you said this to him, you know, so there was a lot of necessity to either get trampled on or fight. And mm. I chose to fight. If somebody mm. says S-H-I-T about you, you just shut up and take it. You're just going to get more piled on you. Mm-hmm. But if you call them out and, you know, you all the like neck rolling and you, you, you stand in a circle and people are around you egging you on to fight. Um, so it ended up that uh, I got it. And I was also very, I don't know, you probably can relate with this, very angry mm-hmm. as, a, as a young person. A lot of anger about my school situation, my family situation, um, my whole life. I don't know that I consciously was aware, but I was dealing with the struggles of being an immigrant family. Mm. And it's very difficult for a person whose parents are working all the time, who's being made fun of at school, whose parents are in a different culture entirely, disciplined differently, allow different, that it's a lot of stress for a young body and mind to handle. And so a lot of what I did was fight and got suspended multiple times. And my parents went from having no money to suddenly having a lot of money through um, the whole LED business booming. My dad, uh, crazy entrepreneur and was looking for the next thing. Like they were fanny patches uh, found, you know, those fanny pouches you would have like as a belt. Yeah, It was those things for a while hit LED and suddenly we went from uh, lower class to upper middle class and they took me out of the public school system and put me in a private school for high school. Um, but I was still dealing with a lot of the those issues I was telling you, anger and isolation, loneliness. Right. I was an only child. My parents worked all the time. Right. But going back to um, what was going on in my mind, things that I coped with, somehow when I was eight years old, I found the community theater in our, um, in Milpitas called Rainbow Theater. Mm-hmm. And I do have no recollection of how I find, how I found it, but I would have to barter with my parents to let me audition for, and there are times that they would not drive me to rehearsal. So the director would pick me up on the way to rehearsal because they did not want me doing theater. My first show was the Phantom Toll Booth. And I was the Earl of, like, you know, one of the wise people mm-hmm. that he goes on, the Earl, the Earl of something. And I remember I wanted to be either Princess Rhyme or Princess Reason, but I got cast as the Earl of something. Um, but I continued to do theater, and that was the highlight of um, my life, was what is the next show going to be? You know, Meet Me in St. Louis, Anne of Green Gables, Little Mermaid. It was just... and they had community dance classes there. So I started taking dance classes and it was the way my parents um, controlled my grades to some extent was if I didn't, I was a horrible student. So it was like, if I didn't get C or above, I couldn't do the next play, you know? Um, So it really saved my life though, because theater gave me 
this outlet of where um, I found real freedom. I didn't have freedom at school and I didn't have freedom at home. Right. And in theater, there was a place where I felt um, like I belonged. I felt that uh, I had a purpose. I felt that I could find what was beautiful in life. I had a hard time oftentimes seeing the beauty in my surroundings, you know, in my crappy school and in my like, <laughs> it was nothing like what the movies looked like. It was nothing like what was shown to me on TV looked like my world. Right. Um, and so I never wanted to do anything else but act. I don't remember when I made the decision. I don't remember how I found the theater. I don't know. I just know that it, it probably saved me uh, from maybe going down some darker paths because I did have some bad influences around me when I was younger in terms of friends and what mm -hmm. they got into. Uh, and so then I went to high school to Notre Dame and it was a real kind of revelation, a real education. And at first I, I, I really pushed back against the authority and found out that it, it didn't fly at this school. You know, I can't tell you how many times Sister Marianne pulled me by the ear and took me like dragged me into her. And I, I, you know, I realized, okay, this is not like public school and it's much smaller. So there's nowhere to hide. There was in the whole school, maybe 200 students in all four years. So um, I just threw myself into theater and initially at Notre Dame, they only did theater in the cafeteria. And um, I started doing uh, drama class there. And then also started working with um, San Jose, uh, the San Jose Stage, which is a professional company in San Jose. Mm -hmm. And somehow, I don't remember how I did this, but I got a professional director to come and teach for a year, Ken Kelleher. He teaches at Ashland you, you, Shakespeare you, Festival. You got that to happen? I Wow. That happen. And I made them build, I didn't make them. I, we had a old Victorian mansion attached to our school because it used to board girls hmm. in the 1800s. And so they would live in the school and that that old structure was still there and there was an unused attic. And so I don't know how I got the school to do it, but Ken and I, Ken Kelleher, who said he would only teach there for a year to launch our drama department together. Uh, we built a black box theater so we went from having shows in the cafeteria to having a real black box theater. And one of the first plays that I decided to put on and direct was, um, and he gave me the freedom to direct shows. Wow. Uh, was God at an all girls Catholic school. I don't know if you know Agnes of God, but it's about a young nun who believes that she's been impregnated by God. And the other nuns think that she's been having sex. Um, so we almost got shut down and then all these people boycotted the eventually they let us put on the play. Um, but I was doing that, and, you know, um, and I put this compilation of, um, monologues together called Urban Jungle, which was about different monologues of women's lives in the city, like a prostitute, a homeless mm -hmm. woman, wow. um, a business woman. So... I was just, I mean, I have no recollection of how I made these decisions or how I, and I did, I did refer to Ken, San Jose Mercury News did an article on me when I got Star Trek and I mentioned Ken Kelleher being a mm -hmm. huge influence on me 
came with, to work with me at Notre Dame for a year, um, formative he was. So that's kind of my, some, a, a very small portion of my genesis. Um, I, I love it. And I, and I have my parents fighting me the whole way. Tell <laughs> No, of course. And, and I have so many other questions, but I actually want to take uh, a slight tangent and ask you something else because you brought something up that, was, that I think is actually important to address. You said that in so many ways, theater helped save you. And I've actually heard that many times before from other people I've talked to and worked with. Um, in, in what way does something like theater give somebody that that savior-like outlet, that freedom, that permission to be safe, forgiving, and loving to yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a it's that's like a three-day symposium right there from different artists to talk about. There are a couple of things for me. You know, when I was young, I was always in a fight or flight. I never felt relaxed. Right. At home, I didn't feel relaxed. At school, I didn't feel relaxed. I was always super aware of myself. Mm -hmm. Like if I would walk across the room, I was aware of my body. And I was, I hated how self-conscious and aware of my body in person I was. I never felt free to be me. The mm -hmm. only place I felt that age. And that's what I talk about, the freedom. Mm. When I could relax. And huh. part of that was hiding character I was it wasn't Linda who was relaxing and just being free it was this other character but it was me it was you know I often said for the longest time when I was younger I only feel like I'm really me when I'm on stage I only feel like I'm relaxed not hyper vigilant about you know um what do people think of me? Am I in danger? Am I, you know, well, like so super aware of myself to an annoying extent, except when I was on stage, it's different now. I've done a lot of work on myself from many different angles so that the, probably the biggest gift as an adult has been that the way I used to feel on stage is the way I feel in life now, you know? Um, wow. And that is, that's true freedom that comes from nowhere but inside my own self. Um, I think another thing that people really respond to is having the permission to feel, hmm. to have an outlet for the big feelings of grief, silliness, anger, um, intense passion, um, you know, even if you're doing a comedy without any deep feelings, to have the freedom to just be um, sillier and goofier and just, and, and, you know, maybe bigger than you allow, I don't mean in acting wise, but taking up more space than you actually allow yourself in real life, you know, as sometimes mm -hmm. comedy does. And that feeling even of allowing ourselves to experience joy which a lot of people I think don't realize they have difficulty allowing themselves to experience joy um you know and when you're on stage 
in a play, whether it's a comedy or a musical or a drama, um, you, the story is not about every day. Like then we went to the store and we came home and we watched Netflix and made some dinner. The play is always something huge is happening. Right. Something needs to be told. There's a huge thing. And so hmm. we find ourselves catapulted into a person's life when they are feeling these emotions at their biggest mm-hmm. when they're, and so that kind of saving your life is, I think so much, I believe this because I, I got diagnosed with lupus um, my senior year mm-hmm. and I spent the whole summer before college in the hospital having tests done on me all the time to figure out what was wrong with me um, until I, at the end of that summer I was diagnosed with lupus mm-hmm. um, that illness can happen too from especially as autoimmune conditions like lupus, Hashimoto's, Crohn's, from the body repressing um, abuse, never being um, metabolized or exercised, uh, repressed. There's a reason that these autoimmune diseases affect minorities more and the female population more. Mm. Uh, People are more likely to squelch their feelings, to be repressed, to be abused in society. Mm. Um, literally an autoimmune disease is when your body starts to attack itself because yeah. it's overreacting to perceived danger. Right. Um, and so having a space where you can express these things that don't feel safe to express to the bully at school or to an abusive parent or to any of these people to have a place to express that. Um, And I also say it saved my life because if I didn't have acting, I don't know, given some of the things that I dealt with from a younger age, what other more volatile outlets I might've looked to. Sure. You see people have similar issues dealing with addiction, dealing with um, depression, uh, all kinds of, the world is as much like beauty and inspiration there is, there are some really dark roads to go down in this world that I think about a lot having a son now. And I worry, you know, I, I do worry. And, and the best I can do is is raise him with love and um, real empathy and listening and compassion and teach him some of these social emotional tools right. for him to make the right decisions when it comes time. Um, so that's the long answer to your question about why why it saved my life. Why no, that's I think beautiful. it saved my life. No, that's beautiful. And I've never, I've always wanted to ask that question that, I feel like um, this of all platforms and person would be the perfect time for me to ask that question. And that makes so much sense. It sounds like um, there's some true value in the art of role play. And I think that's also one reason probably why a lot of people are addicted to gaming. That's probably their role play, mm-hmm. their escape, their, their um, path into another world. And it's very similar to what you said, like 
things are more simple. There's a much bigger things going on. You got to save the universe, all that stuff, right? You're a different person. You don't have the same type of freedom um, as you do on stage uh, where you can actually now literally put your own emotions into a new character, but it's still better than nothing, right? Having yeah. a, right, a, a role-playing type of a game. So, um, you know, I hope we have, I hope in the future, in the near future, like very near future, something like theater can be more mainstream in the curriculum in schools as not just um, a course take or extracurricular activity, but also a type of, I don't know if I should say prophylactic therapy, but a way to help people have another option. To, to, to seek and connect with people. And I think I think what you said was so true was that um, if it wasn't for theater, the other options you had left were probably not as savory, so to speak. So so thank God that you found that in such early stage at eight. That's so amazing you found that at the age of eight. So great. Um, okay, I, I definitely want to move on to other questions because so many stuff I want to talk to you about and we can talk about this all day. But Enterprise, let's just jump into that real quick. What was, what was it like being on set of Enterprise? Was, did you learn some great lessons from that, that extent of your professional career? Um, and, and how did that help you move forward in, in Hollywood and as an entertainer? Um, was that like the, a milestone for you? Well, uh, we talked about this earlier. I mean, I was 21 when I booked that job. Uh, and I had done, I think, two jobs before. Then the first job I booked when I moved to LA was Jurassic Park. And that was uh, one day. And it was my first day ever on set, ever. And it was on a huge, huge, you know, budget, everything. Um, so I was kind of catapulted into the, into the big leagues pretty quickly, but starting Star Trek as a series regular, it was pretty intense going and being sized up for your own personal doll, having um, someone oh, approach you as, a, uh, as someone to keep you safe from stalking. Yeah. Uh, she came onto the set and offered her services. And, you know, uh, and, and there's things beyond just the acting that um, suddenly you're doing all these makeup and hair tests and they're asking you, would you like wax her upper lip? You know, these things as a 21 year old, I never even thought I was like, oh my God, is there, you know, like I didn't, it was just suddenly, it was just like the lens was just like tight on me. And, um, and there's a lot of business people. There's all these like likeness con I mean, it seemed like for weeks and weeks, we were just signing all kinds of contracts about, because it already, Star Trek already comes with um, uh, products. Right. So another we start, you may get, I could have gotten a series on an NBC show about like a bunch of doctors, but not had to go through what I had to go through for Star Trek because they don't have an established um, product line. Right. But it was, it definitely was something that I think I was too young at the time to fully realize what a big deal it was to get mm -hmm. Star Trek. 
I was a fan of Next Generation, but we didn't have cable. So it was only like what was on TV. It was, you know, it was like um, TGIF and, uh, <laughs> you know, TNG and just whatever you could, whatever was on TV. You're like, okay, Beverly Hills 90210. Um, but I actually, for a moment, thought that I wasn't going to accept the job and that I was going to go do Cyrano de Bergerac at San Jose Rep because when I auditioned for it I'd already gotten the role of Roxanne in Cyrano hmm. uh, from the city that I came from where I would go and watch uh, shows on the main stage with my high school and think oh my god someday I'll be up on that stage and I had just graduated from college and I got the role of Roxanne in Cyrano and my agents told me you need to realize this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. These things don't come along very often. Um, I you know, I think it was a growing, I've said this quite often that it was like a grad school for me. Um, and it was four years and I was learning how to be in front of a camera. I'd been in front of a camera two times, like literally only two days before I started as a series regular. You know, so I did, I was learning from Scott in particular, who was so generous with his, um, knowledge and yeah, about like, uh, you're, you're not in your life, just move like this a little bit, or, you know, being like, oh, you have a little hair out of place. And we'd be in scenes together and he'd constantly be teaching me, not only by telling me, but me watching him ask the DP, how big is the frame? Am I here? Like where? And then, yeah. you know, the cameraman would say it's like it's pretty like here and so mm -hmm. then Scott would know how big the frame was mm -hmm. you know, he would go and 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 so that's something I then think of like where are we in shooting out the scene are we in the big master so then I'm not gonna worry too much about spending all of my emotion if it's an emotional scene you know um like I'm gonna know it's the long game and maybe four hours later we're still shooting this two-page scene and then they're gonna be right here Right. Two hours later and these are all things that person learns on set um slowly but i was kind of catapulted into it like right away into the deep end and luckily i had a really kind mentor in in scott um i felt john billingsley was that for me as well um connor was pretty new to it too he was a big theater actor, mm -hmm, so he'd mm -hmm. done some stuff, but he wasn't. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, and, and you know, an enterprise is something that still uh, means so much in people's lives. Yeah. That it, it is the gift that keep, keeps giving in terms of, I guess the biggest gift I have is somebody posted recently on Twitter his girlfriend had finished watching all of the Enterprise four seasons and he didn't tell her when it was going to end. So when she realized that the last episode of season four was the end, she was, he took a video of her crying saying, this isn't fair. This isn't fair, you know, and to see that it sometimes can feel so isolating as an actor, especially when the world is, in a lot of pain, what do I really do? What is, how can I be of more service? When 
I see somebody who has gotten so invested, just because the way you say that gaming is an escape similar to theater, getting into a show or a movie is also an escape. The, the actors and the show itself is allowing you to cry, to laugh, yeah. to feel you, when you're really, you know how it is when you become obsessed with the show and you binge it, yeah. suddenly you feel like you're like, I'm like, I am Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad. Like, I think I'm him. Like there's a part of you that, that becomes possessed by the spirit of the actor and the character. And you feel the heartbreak that they feel. You feel yeah. the rage that they feel. Yeah. There's retribution, you feel that too. Um, so to give that, to know that the show has given that to some people in the sense of allowing them to feel connected to us as a crew, to feel the sense of wonder, to feel sadness, to feel love, to feel all of these, you know, feelings of of camaraderie between the crew and feel that they are part of that family. Um, it does probably do more for me than it does for them in the sense of giving, reaffirming that what I do does matter. Yeah, In absolutely. a different way, an actor out there who's marching in the streets and trying to change legislation and yeah, it's different, but I'm not good at, I, I don't know as much about that as I know about telling stories. So really, you know, my activism will come in the choices that I make as an actor, what I'm trying to push forward. You know, I, I also see, you talked about activism. I also see it in the way that I raise my son. You know, mm -hmm. oftentimes in the world that we live in, there can be such a feeling of powerlessness beyond retweeting something. Right. Uh, of, of there's so much wrong in the world and I don't know how to change it. I don't know that I've had to, when I have, and I had this recently where I'm very upset about something that's going on in the world and I was wrecked for days and I had to just bring it down to my son to say these choices, this human that I'm raising if everybody who has that intention of making the world a better place starts to radiate that to their friends, their family, to their children, the multiplication effect, there will still be a lot of darkness out there, but that gives me a feeling of, it doesn't seem like a lot. It's probably the most powerful thing I can do as an individual is to raise a compassionate, empathetic, st strong human being who who does who does to the best of ability make the world a better place himself. You know, with his children, his family, his friends. So um, that was a long kind of thing around enterprise, but I love that. There yeah. we are. <laughs> I love it, and I think. Uh, Koshi Sato is definitely one of my favorite characters just because um, she definitely she definitely had a strong presence. Um, she definitely, and she especially during one of the episodes to geek out where uh, where it was like the mirror universe, you had a really strong role in that particular episode, which I thought was great that they brought you in, right? As 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 um, 
as almost like the, the antagonist at that, that point, which was really fun. So that was really yeah, cool to see yeah. that, right? Um, that, like I said, so many questions, like I talking for all of them, but there was something called Cat in a Hot Tin Roof you did, I think that also sparked another direction for something that you're probably now like also taking a new interest into. Tell us a bit about Cat in a Hot Tin Roof and why that was significant to you now in your journey. Yeah, so um, I've mentioned this a lot in different interviews, but, um, and I kind of want to bring it back to what you said. I, I think also with Hoshi, it meant a lot to people, even in the early 2000s, when they saw an Asian American mm -hmm. in a TV show. Yep. Representation, be somebody who looks like you. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling of, even family you feel there's like a sense of or I did growing up a sense of um, warmth that happens in my you know in my heart and for me when I was young with my mom saying don't be an actor if you want to be an actor wait till you move back to Korea and be an actor there um, I saw Sandra Oh in this independent film called Double Happiness and it blew my mind. I was, I hadn't seen an Asian person in a movie since we watched um, The Last Emperor in, uh, in our history class. And it, and it was in China, it was in America. And she was, didn't have an accent. And she wanted to be an actress. And she was dating, you know, she was against her parents' wishes. She was dating this white guy. And in her room, she would do these monologues and they would do this, effect where stage lights would go on. And in her bedroom, she would do Maggie the Cat monologues from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and with a Southern accent. And this was Sandra Oh, you know, in her bedroom doing a Southern accent, a Tennessee Williams character. Mm -hmm. And I remember those monologues really stuck out to me because what the character was saying were things that I felt an ache inside myself. And so that's how I discovered Tennessee Williams. And I started reading him just voraciously. I started reading all his play, everything. And I would end up bawling at the end of every play wow. because there's something in a man in the South who understands being ostracized and feeling ugly in his own skin. Feeling, and oftentimes the, the person he put who was his avatar was a very troubled Southern woman yeah. who had a hungry ghost in her that could never be filled, you know, with alcohol or, you know, sex or whatever it was. And all these things I, I felt, even though they were so in a different world from me, I understood what Maggie was saying when she said, I feel like a cat on a hot tin roof. I'm stuck in this painful place because I have nowhere else to go. I've just got to survive and stay on it. And I'm a survivor and I will win. Um, you know, this, this, her feeling of just like always feeling this desire to have something to call her own and being mm -hmm. in, in a, an alien in the country for so much of my childhood and not being Korean either, I felt that 
that nowhere place of what do I call my own? Like, I don't have an identity. My parents aren't my identity, the people at school. And so then I auditioned for all my drama schools with Maggie, but I never thought that I would ever play her because she's a woman in the South in 1950. Right, and then right. um, I just, I, I, ex- as I did through most of my theater career, what roles I could do and what roles I couldn't do. I could be in Shakespeare, but I couldn't be in Eugene O'Neill. I could be in maybe a contemporary play if it was the right part, like a wife of a rich older man type of thing. But I couldn't be in, let's say, a Lillian Hellman play um, who writes about the South, you know, in the late 1800s. And so then when my theater company, Anteus, who has cast me, who would cast me in the past against race uh, um, as a daughter of a white woman in Mrs. Warren's profession in England. And it's a, it's not a, a, like a small theater. It's a huge hundred members, including Tony Award winners, Emmy winners, we um, built our new theater complex with $3 million. You know, it's a major theater. When I found out we were doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with a director that I've worked with in a multiracial production of All My Sons by Arthur Miller, I thought if ever I'm gonna do Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, it will be in this play. And I got the role of Maggie the Cat. Um, And I started doing research for myself Because even to that point in 2018, whenever I was put in a period piece, even though nobody ever asked of me, I needed to validate for myself as an actor why I was there. Was I adopted? Was my father Asian, but my mother white? All these little secrets I had for myself to convince myself that I belonged. Mm. Nobody else did that. I did that to myself Mm. because I thought other way that I can fit into this somehow mm-hmm. and I did the same that Cameron said I oh, don't worry about it you know I don't we don't but I did research I said well, were there were there Asian people in the south and then I was blown away as you know because you are one of this community of yeah. this Mississippi Chinese that sure. during a certain period of time like 1930s to 1960s there was a, a huge community that were doing really well as merchants, as grocery store owners. Mm -hmm. owners. And so that became my whole backstory to Maggie the Cat. And um, fast forward to uh, our lockdown, our, our quarantine and George Floyd and feeling all of this kind of binary black and white just really surging up again in our it's always been there but now it it had been it was really the divided lines were being talked about yeah you know like black lives matter saying all lives matter all of these and i i was a hundred percent um with black lives matter real, real push for a change in policing in America and social services in America. And yet at the same time felt that my voice as an Asian American in the dialogue race, um, that it wasn't 
time for that. It wasn't the time for it. Even while there was more anti-Asian sentiments with COVID mm-hmm. and, you know, um, all these news reports I was hearing about these people being harassed and called horrendous things, even here in California. And, you know, that, that crazy woman who was going around taped yep. three times, yep. Asian, you know, and then was arrested to think, but yet I didn't feel because my suffering, my suffering wasn't historically as bad as the black experience. And I felt like I wanted to, that I wanted to stand with the black community in a respectful way that didn't make it about, but still I had a lot of confusion, not confusion, but when, you know, it was white groups talking about anti-racism, but it was for whites and then like black, and there were some BIPOC where it was for colored people, but for a while there, I felt this real, um, where do I, where does my experience lie in this dialogue? Mm-hmm. Because I do feel um, it's so complicated and there's even, there are things in order to heal for myself personally and to be um, honest and a true voice in, in helping um, this dialogue that's happening nationally and within um, businesses and even within our own theater company of anti-racism, we need to talk. Real, there needs to be a freedom of, of talking about all experiences. And some of the groups that I've gotten involved with, um, there have been people of Jewish um, descent, of uh, Latinx descent, of, of talking about the difficulty of navigating for a while a binary world. And this is the world that a lot of the Chinese Mississippi lived in during Jim Crow segregation was they were near twice, um, but not white. They still were held back in terms of school and owning homes in terms of far they could get ahead in society and so I really was starting to write a project about the Mississippi Chinese in 1940 because something that's really important to me right now is Asian Americans and this is just my voice because I'm Asian American have been in America since way back when we're not a modern uh, a modern happening And a lot of people associate when they tell stories of Asian Americans in America of like the eighties and beyond in film and television. They don't tell about, you know, the Chinatown in New York, like where's the movie about the Chinatown in, in, in New York in the 1950s or the Chinese in the Mississippi in the 1920s, thirties, forties, you know, or the, or um, the, you know, or the Japanese living in Los Angeles in 19, you know, there's, there's a lack of period pieces that tell other American stories. And I also, you know, I also mean that about um, Latinx. 
Native American, these, these American stories that are period that I grew up on loving, these 1950s, you know, 1920s, I felt I could never be a part of because they're all white and an Asian person doesn't belong in there. And as I'm learning more about this country's history, we were here and to not show us in film and TV makes me feel that it's being erased from history. Just the same way as all those Chinese who helped build the railroads when it was time to take the picture were not allowed to be in the picture of the railroad finally built. So in effect, they were erased from that history. When so many of them died building the railroads, over half were Chinese and they meet in the middle of America and now they've got to stand off to the side. And we have to stop that. We have to stop retelling America as a pure white America, because that's what proliferates this make America great again. Make mm -hmm. America great again when it was just people, newsflash, that was never the case. That was never the case. And there is something that I've been finding as a, a new love I have of, of writing and a storyteller is I want to push forward these stories that I've been finding in American history, these period pieces that are real American, Asian American stories that are just as epic as any other, as any other, um, you know, like, I'm trying to think of, I mean, Ford versus Ferrari is like the seven, but you have all of these tales of saving Mr. You know, all these period like tales of these great personalities in American history. And I want to see um, that be diversified. So moving forward in the stories that I'm pushing, that I'm wanting to tell, given my love of theater, given my love of period pieces, is to start telling diverse stories from our country's history that are American stories as apple pie and it's not about white people. Um, you know, this book that I love that I told you about uh, is blowing my mind is um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Parkham. It's like backwards, I don't know how to, anyways, yeah. Minor Feelings. And she talks a lot about the narratives that we're given as Asian Americans. Like this is the one story that's allowed right now. In, instead of there are, it, we're not a monolith of experience, we're not. And we need to start breaking that open with a big hammer. And, you know, it's not just only one story is allowed or one type of, of um, narrative that we're much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. We have, many different facets and stories to tell that could fill like years and years and decades of movies, TV, you know, play. They just have to be allowed. And now is the time. The world is ready for it. You can feel it in the shows that get the most heat on um, Netflix or it, it's not these kind of the way it has been where it's all white cast, like there's a huge call. People want to see themselves represented. They're now, now they've had a taste of what it's like to see themselves represented. They watch a movie with like a, or a TV series with an all white cast 
and it's pointed out that they don't want to see that. Yeah. They don't want to see that. Um, and, you know, I know I've been going so, but I'm really passionate about this is I think another really important aspect of this is that Asian Americans, Kathy Park Hong talks about this, is that there's some level of, I experienced this, of um, humility that we were raised, that I was raised with right. culturally, right. of not of space, of being grateful to have what I have in America, um, this kind of, this unspoken, she talks about it. You know, you Asians are next in line to be white. This nearness to whiteness that is, you know, so be grateful. Like you get, you're, you're, that there is this, there is an, there, it's a subtle, not a subtle, it's very, but it's a passive aggressive suppression of the fullness of our expression, of the fullness right. of what we can do. And a lot of that is self-imposed to say, um, if there's any self-hatred I'm feeling, if there's any discontent I'm having, it's not America's fault. It's my own cultural background. It's myself. So there's so much perpetuation of self-hate. There's something wrong with me that America has given me so much. I'm unhappy. I don't feel that I belong. I don't feel pretty. I don't feel like I'm, I am, that it's not, the system's fault. It's my fault. There's a lot of, of self-hate that can happen, putting oneself down that, you know, oh, it's okay. Like the example where I said that I always needed to, instead of assuming that I, I have a place in these new contemporary plays that are coming out or even old classics, I myself told well, also because of experience from auditioning, told myself I can only fit into this play if somehow I make sense as an Asian American in this play. There is a kind of um, over politeness, an over um, the sense of like of not wanting to take up too much space, not wanting to be. Um, too demanding in my own experience that I'm trying to break out of not I'm not saying to be rude or um you know uh, violent I, I just I just mean that I myself as an Asian American woman want to start using my voice taking up my space saying no to those things that I don't think are um, a good representation of Asians in film and TV. Or if I do audition for something, say, I'm not going to play it like a tiger mom. I'm not going to do that, you know, that kind of accent for you. I'm not going to, the, my own integrity of, I'm not gonna see it. Oh, I'm so grateful to have a part in a movie, yes, I'll do it with a weird Asian accent. I've never done a Japanese accent, but here, I'll give you a, a random one, even though I don't have an accent. I'll just put on something, is that okay? Yeah, you know, of, of saying, whatever you say, just put me on TV or film. Right. No, I won't. It's 
ultimately going back to the activism that I can do is these choices that I stand up for myself. Uh, I stand up for how I put myself out there as an actress in roles, how I play those roles, how I represent my Asian American community so that they can be proud of me, they can be proud of themselves and not feel like, oh my God, that's embarrassing. Yeah. That's not yeah. us. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Th at the end thank of the day, life is short. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for doing that, Linda. Thank you for like, um, being, being representative of the people um, and not taking the easy way, so to speak, for lack of a better word. Thank you for that. Um, and that really leads me to a final, my final question, which is what advice do you have for these new up and coming next generation of entertainers, journalists within the Asian American community? Um, as they take their turn to be in the spotlight, front and center, and what type of mindset mentality should they go in with understanding from 2021 onward now, what kind of life and world and community we want to create from that? My, it sounds cheesy, but my biggest advice is on a deep, deep cellular level, learn to love yourself. Okay. You know, I mean, going out in terms of being an actor or a journalist, this is where you come from. If this foundation isn't stable, your sense of courage in telling with integrity what you want to tell your sense of confidence in knowing that you have it in you, uh, the, the feeling that no matter what people say about you or may do to you is no statement on yourself. That's a statement on them. You hmm. need these foundations of self-love and self-regard to go ahead and tell the stories that need to be told to, it sounds very lofty, but to make the world a better place with what gifts that you were given. Right. And in order to do that, you have got to really come from a strong foundation of self-regard, trust in yourself. And it's not like, a, oh, I'm the shit kind of way. It's not that, because that's, that's not true self-regard to say I'm better than others. It's not to say I'm better or less than. Um, and it's hard as a young person, but I think this next generation has really shown up in the sense of being awake and aware to seeing people of different um, sexual identities, preferences, races, um, in a much more open way than past generations. And right. that really excites me that there's some really dark shit going on right now out there with this upheaval of whatever you want to call it, white national, you know, supremacy, white nationalism, whatever, you know, all of that, that 
that's a dying, that's, that's a dying beast. I really do. And so I think that this next generation, you know, care for yourselves so you can go out and care for the world. And no one at the end of the day can give that to ourselves but us. We can't choose our parents. We can't choose um, the people we that are out in the street saying mean things maybe or acting like jerks. But... Um, yeah, that's my, and then, you know, and also integrity, like always keep coming back to why do I do what I, why am I doing this? If you're doing it to be famous, have a lot of money, you're going to burn out. If you're doing it because this is what fills you up on a deep, like level on a deep, deep level, because you love it more than anything else, because this is the only way you know how to be, um, a member of society that contributes and, and, and makes the community better, connect to a deep nourishing why that will sustain you through rejection, that will sustain you through criticism. Um, it's a faith. It's a faith in yourself and why you do your life's work that is unpenetrable to any outside opinions and events of what's going on in the world um that's those are those are two two things but they're very big things and can i can i can i close with um asking you why do you do it linda why do i do why do i act why do you act what is your why do you do your mission i do you know i do my mission now because I don't know any other way to give myself wholly to this world in a positive way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was talking to you about how I think before we were recording about how sometimes I can get hard on myself when I see people out on the streets doing the real hard work of grassroots organizing you know, going to Washington to try to change legislation, doing these things. And, and I'm like, I'm so angry about so much what's going on. And I feel powerless to remember what those are the gifts they were given. What right. my gift. And that's why, especially now I'm branching out to being a storyteller so that I can now take these stories of Asian Americans in America and hopefully take my passion and start to like open up that, not even open up, take a big hammer and just, you know, with all those other Asian American artists out there who are doing the same exact thing and they're taking the hammer uh, and breaking this glass like cage of what we're supposed to be and saying no more. And I do it because that's how I, I find my way to give. I'm, I'm not gifted in a lot of like, <laughs> this is the one thing, like I told you, since I was eight, somehow it found me. So I will to the best of my ability till the day I die. It may not be life-changing or, you know, but it's my way and I will give my 100% to it. That and being a mother. <laughs> Thank you again so much, Linda, for 
sharing your story, some insights about your life, um, your life lessons, um, the work you do, the reason why you do it, um, some advice for the next up and coming representatives from our community in the limelight. Thank you so much for, for all of that, all within the span of an hour, <laughs> which is just such a, such a wonderful journey and such a wonderful gift. Um, I hope I get a, probably get a chance to have you on our show next time in person because this was just so much fun to do, uh, even virtually, but I'm person, I can only imagine how much fun that would be. So uh, with that, I'm gonna let you go. I wanna wish you and all your loved ones a very, very happy um, 2021 as we move forward. I think we can only just improve from here. And I hope to see you on our show again very, very soon, okay? Thank you so much for everything you do for us. Plug, our last season of Bosch will be coming out this year. So for the Bosch fans, it's gonna be a great season. So it's sad to say bye to that show, but it's been a, a wonderful ride five years <laughs> my god that that's also one for the record book yes we'll definitely make sure we celebrate that last season with you um but again thank you so much and i look forward to connecting again in 2021 as we move forward and just make things better from this point onward so thank you again for everything you do Hey, thanks for joining us with this conversation with Linda Park from the Imagine Talks Annual Symposium. Hey, to learn more about Imagine Talks, go to www.imaginetalks.org. Edge Interns and Mental Power Hacks supports this podcast. Edge Interns sources the best interns to the best companies. Learn more at edge, that's edgeinterns.com. Mental Power Hacks is where you'll get life hacks to boost your mental performance, productivity, and success. Connect with us at mentalpowerhacks.com, subscribe to us, and get the latest episodes of the Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact, and Overcoming Obstacles. See you next episode.